All right, so all of you who are standing have been to a weekender. Would any of you like to share why it was, so we've talked about nine marks here. We've heard some, some talks on it. You've read the books. Why do you think it might be helpful for other brothers here to go to a nine marks weekender? Well, first of all, okay, so can I get two or three volunteers to speak on? Just raise your hand if you're two or three volunteers who want to speak on. So Dom, Rocky, and Bruno. Okay, everyone else, all of you can be seated for now. Before they talk, I just want Mark to share what, what is a Nine Marks Weekender, and uh, then I'll have these brothers. You just come to uh, one of the host churches on the Thursday. You see an elders meeting. Lectures are laid on Friday and Saturday about things like church polity, preaching, all kinds of practical aspects of ministry. You sit through a church's services on Sunday in a members meeting. Final reflections Monday morning. That's generally the schedule. It can vary a little bit, but that's generally the schedule. Basically, you're looking at another church which gives you an opportunity to think about all kinds of things in your own church. And what's your main, what's your main hope for those who attend? It varies a lot depending on where they're coming from. So it okay. just, it's different people need different things. So seeing a church and, and immersing yourself for that, for that weekend. Yeah. All right, so Dom? Yeah, so I've been to PJs, I think maybe once or twice. I think probably the biggest takeaway is hearing it is one thing, seeing it is something else. Hearing from leadership is one thing. Interacting with the members and hearing how the members interact with the leadership with with each other it's it's indispensable so um, being able to not just hear and learn but being able to spend time with the members I, I, let me just say one story real quickly as they were welcoming on new members PJ had asked um, as they were going through the, the, the member list the potential guys coming on who in our church has sat down heard a testimony had a meal uh, got to just enjoy some time with the potential members coming on. I was sitting up in front, and when I turned around, every single one of the members had raised their hand. And it was something that I've never experienced before because where I come from, it's usually the elders who are doing that. But the entire church knew who was coming on, knew them well, had heard their testimonies, and had a confidence with the members they were bringing on. Yeah, thanks, brother. Rocky? Yeah, thank you. Um, just to be able to see meaningful membership just fleshed out, lived out. And we've read the books, we listened to the YouTube sermons and gone to the conferences, but to see it lived out in the flesh was very devotional and, and, and educational for us. And I would go along with just more than yourself. Bring two, three, however many they let you. I think that's a foundational thing. And But let me give you a, a picture of this is that one of the elders... Uh, it was Bobby at the time, and they're talking about uh, someone who needed to be removed from the um, membership. I'm not going to say specifically what, but it was a very serious situation, and Brother Bobby was in tears, crying and pleading for this person. And I think the, the, the people, the members could see clearly how much the elders loved the people. And the affection was very mutual, and that was very, uh, it's a great vision for me to see that. So, Thanks, Rocky. Yep. And then you went to the CHBC one, just this last one, right? Capitol Hill? Yeah. Yep. Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. What, what, um, wait, what's the... Oh, yeah, May. You did the May one. Yeah, right. and that's really where, um, you know, he talked about sermon application grid. I, I think, as Pastor Mark said, he's an extreme uh, uh, extrovert, and doing sermon readings and getting critique 10 o'clock right before game night is not something I can handle. However, I could, what I could handle is having coffee with some brothers at 7 to 9 on Saturday morning. I could handle that of going over sermon application grid and just kind of seeing that in the flesh. That was very helpful for me to uh, um, see. So thank Great. you. And lastly, Bruno, you want to say something, brother? PJs, um, to your weekender. I have to say the best part was to see their elder meeting. And, when, and you see you get to see everything they talked about. You get to see them apply it to the, every single moment of that elder meeting. They'll, they begin their elder meeting praying. And you can tell the difference because I've, I've had the privilege of seeing many different types of churches and then hearing ways different churches pray. And when they pray, it was of so much of a concern for the members that we went through and what might have seemed boring to some people, but we went through a whole stack of different members that they had specific concerns for and they already knew what they needed to pray for and they already asked those members what they needed and then they went through and prayed for each one meaningfully not just a quick you know oh, God help them um, next one but they went through each one carefully and intentionally talking about 
God help them? How can we help them? What's our, who wants to, you know, direct this person? Who can we delegate to help that person? And you get to see that care and love put in person where it's not just a, you know, the, the facts that they're presenting to you that are biblical, but rather it's the way of life that leads to just what Christ really meant for us. Yeah, so if you want to check out the Weekenders, you go to the Nine Marks uh, events page. There's three a year at Capitol Hill, and there's a few others around the country, Austin, Texas, and uh, northwest of Michael Lawrence. And we're, our next Nine Marks Weekender in L.A. is in October, October 14 to 17, if that would interest you. All right, questions from you guys on anything from the whole day. Just raise your hand. They'll get you a microphone. Your name, your church, city, and one over here. Name is Lee Yi. I'm with Rocky's Church, uh, San Gabriel, the Evergreen. Uh, Christianity Today read an article May, June about the declining morale of pastors and how they're thinking about quitting. I don't know if you saw that. And Mark, you mentioned that uh, in teaching these 26 manuscripts of the Old Testament, that you can number 70 or 80 guys who want to emulate you. They've got good examples of teachers. But something has happened in a bigger sense after this COVID epidemic because people or a percentage of people having sat out church during COVID are not coming back. I don't know what that percentage is, 20, 25, 30% because they've sat at home and with the technology they have, they can hear MacArthur Tony Evans, all these great preachers and pastors have to get, they get compared to these great guys on the internet. So I think the answer is what you were saying. It's really about this personal touch, being in the church with people that love them and care about them. It's not about a content dump. And so many of our younger people want to be able to preach. They want to teach. And it's, but it's not anymore about content dump because they're not coming back. And this COVID epidemic, I think, has taught us that. Any comments on what these macro things are happening in the, in the church today? Lee, is that your name? Lee? Yeah. Lee, I agree with you. Yeah. Thanks, Lee. All right, Jeff. Oh, well, that's everything we've been talking about today. So I think the, the so again. He's saying that's part of it. Yeah, it, you suggested that in your own answer. Yeah, I, I think I think that uh, I think the church being the church being more. I, I had a, a well-known Christian preacher come up to me a couple of weeks ago and say that he has realized he was wrongly centered on the pulpit. He needs to be centered on a healthy church. And the center of that is a healthy pulpit. So it's not the pulpit's unimportant, the pulpit's very important. But it's not the whole shooting match. And I think when, you, when people have been live streaming their services, that begins to make the difference clear between when really all it is is a sermon versus a community. And in the Bible, it's a community. The church is huge, the sermon is hugely important. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But it's just not only the sermon. It's the community that is the church. You can't live stream the community. Now's a good time to be teaching about the church. What can we do now? Now's a good time for maybe that topical series on the church. Yeah. yeah and, and practically speaking, um, my elders have um, gone through our directory, identified those people who haven't come back, and we're visiting them. It's a pretty, the Lord bless us, is a really small group for us, but we're just going to just visit them and um, try to shepherd them through uh, the commitment they need to live out as a member of a, of a body. And Lee, we're doing the same thing. We, we identified about 200 people at the height of COVID. We've gotten it down to about 60. So we're just still working on understanding everybody's situation, trying to work with them individually. Quick, for those of us that don't know, a quick explanation of the application grid. Now, Jeff, have you been baptized as a believer? Yes. Yeah, I keep trying <laughs> to explain this to you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, how did your Reformed Church take that? 
So generations has always been a credo. You, Say what? Generations has always been a credo. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how we got there. Yeah. I think there was an um, assumption. My application on your part. grid. I take a piece of paper. I literally write in the left hand the points of my sermon, and then I write columns like uh, evangelistic uh, work, uh, public application, uh, gender, marriage, family, children, individual Christian. That's the only column in America most Christian evangelical pastors preach, the individual Christian. Uh, and then Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And I'll try to think with each of my points of the sermon, what would be an application for those verses for this person, this person, this kind of person, this kind of situation. Uh, yeah. Clark, who do you have back there? Where is it? Okay, it's standing. Yeah. From Arisen Church in Santa Monica. Um, Quick question about the number of elders that you have at your churches. So I was kind of blown away by the uh, Grace Community and Capitol Hill Baptist numbers. How do you keep elders motivated? And then is there a sweet spot for the number of elders that you have for the size of the congregation in terms of ministering to the congregation? Yeah, I don't know that there is a sweet spot. I think if you, I, I will just say, having served on elderships as small as three or four, and ours started at six, in 1998 and is now 24 right now. It's, we've been up to, I think, 28. Um, that elderships are good for different things. If you want every elder to speak up in order to make a decision and you want more unanimity, you obviously want a smaller eldership. If your eldership is more used for pastoral reach into the congregation, a larger eldership actually helps you. So there are pros and cons uh, you do have to have the elders, if, if your church changes sizes, you can go from grow, large to small or small to large, your elders are going to have to be flexible to change their own expectations for being involved as an elder in the meeting. Though their work outside the meeting shouldn't really change. Their work outside the meeting is, is the same. But in the meeting, it will have to change. Not everybody speaks on everything when you have 24 elders. Wait, just, let me just do a quick word. So uh, June and um, Clark, just look around and get to the next guy. So keep looking around even while they're giving an answer. And you guys, you've got to get their attention for the microphone, okay? Uh, John Joe, Valley of Grace. Uh, my question has a lot of, uh, it's cultural, ethnic. So I'm part of a Korean church that has English ministry and I pass for the Eng English side. Um, do you see a place for that uh, in, in the in gospel center ecclesiology having two separate services with two different preachers and how would you comment on that you're talking about, you're talking about two different languages too yeah so the, the korean side preaches in korean and the english side preaches in english and we just have two different congregations preaching different things yeah. john john lee's been doing yeah. a great job of helping us edit a number of articles, produce and edit a number of articles on Nine Marks, wrestling with this from immigrant church pastors, most of which are dealing with that form in, in, in one way or another. I, I think uh, to some extent it's inevitable as you have kind of a first generation Chinese speaking, Spanish speaking, whatever, give way to a second generation that's going to be more English speaking. And I think some transition is okay, but it's not ideal. And I think in time, now look, I, I've not done this personally, so I'm, I'm speaking more than I've, I've done. But just looking at the Bible uh, to the best that I can, I think you want to move towards that English speaking second generation church being self-governing. A church with its own elders, its own congregational decisions, taking the supper and baptism together independently. Now, can those two, the first generation Chinese speaking and the second generation English speaking, can they continue to partner together in more perhaps integrated ways than they would with other? Because look, mom and dad are here and you know the, the adult children are at this, this one. And there's all sorts of ties still of various kinds. I, you know, perhaps, perhaps there's ways to work out additional levels of partnership. But I still think over time, you don't want to you want to aspire towards independence. They could share the same building, 
they could have right. they could have monthly meals together you know there's all kinds of things that you could do that's going to still cherish the family unities that are there but while trying to pull out the church component and let the congregation that meets together and experiences life together as a congregation have their own responsibility for membership and discipline basically and I say all of that with some awareness of how difficult that is culturally, especially intergenerational questions and honor and what the expectations of the parents are going to be. I know that can be very difficult, and it may take time. It may take a number of years to get to the place where you can do that. Nonetheless, you're teaching to that end. You, you might be interested, if you're a little bit like me and like history, you might be interested in just all the history there is of congregations for 150 years, 200 years in this, this country, particularly as a country of immigrants, just going through that. You know, John Piper's church was still meeting in Swedish in the early 1900s. They had to go through a whole transition. They went through all these things. You have younger people going to an English-speaking... It just This has been done a thousand, thousand times. Uh, and you can do historical work on it, and you might learn some things that would be good for your congregation. Testing. There we go. Uh, Jeff, South Bay Christian Alliance in San Diego. Uh, we're a church replant. We only have about nine people right now. And so question of membership is when would be a good time to start actually enacting church membership? Some of that goes into our polity because we're a Christian Missionary Alliance, which is different than SBC. So there's that. But there's still a lot of looseness in the when do we start. And I had a second part of that question. I don't remember what it was anymore, so we'll stick with that one. <laughs> Did you say 90 or 9? Nine? Nine. 9, including a toddler. 9. So he'll be and, a while. And there's not membership? What are those 9 if they're not members? Part of this has to do with our polity. So we're what's called a developing church. So our district superintendent is actually the board of our church. So that way we can kind of operate ones legally. It's a little bit going into the, the weeds here, but a lot of it has to do with our polity. So they're participants of the church, they're members of the church because they're fully committed, but uh, there's not a voting structure in place until we call something that's called accredited. And there's certain stipulations in our polity that requires us to be able to obtain to that. So there's a loose sense of membership, you belong, you're committed, so forth. So. But you, mm -hmm. there's this weird middle ground where you have to transition from developing to accredited, and at some point you have to do this whole membership process. So really, yeah. polity aside, my question would be just numbers-wise, as we're tiny, when would you suggest doing something like membership classes, stuff right. like that? Right. I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I want to ask a bunch of questions and get into the weeds. <laughs> I don't know if we could do that. Do you have any quick advice? Like, I, I, it's not clear to me what you're missing. I'd want to figure that out. I mean, in terms of membership classes, I mean, you, you, you can start that, I would think. Would the nine object you to doing that with new people coming in? If, if they wouldn't, then you can start that right away. And certainly interviews that you're going to conduct of new people coming in. The, the harder question is, how do you identify those nine and what they are? If they're taking the supper, if they're agreeing that, hey, we're all members here, well, then you have it. You're there. Right? This extra accreditation thing, I, I just don't understand that. And... And that's the polity Maybe. thing. I could talk to you about it afterwards. Yeah, sure. Sure. Hello. Uh, question for Mark. Uh, so training up leaders on the topic of that, uh, you talked about internship, and there's guys here who stood up, and they, you know, John Lee, you know, I know some of these guys, and they go spend, whatever, five months or whatever with you. They learn with you. Sounds awesome. How does that work for like bivocational guys? So we have a lot of elders we're training and most of our staff has side jobs because LA is expensive. What does it look like for training, raising up elders who could plant churches or just be elders in a local church, but will always have a second and maybe a third job? Uh, do you have elders like that? Is that, do you train them differently? How do you navigate that? Uh, tips for bivocational, tri-vocational ministers. Uh, Matt, I don't, I don't think I have any special wisdom on that. I mean, it's a hard situation. It's uh, Christians have always known the situation. You can look at Paul, uh, and you know the way he both works and receives support. Um, I will say that it is normal in the history of Christianity for ministers to be paid. You can tell that again from reading Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians. 
So insofar as a church can afford to set aside a person full-time, that will accrue to the benefit of that church and all of its members. So I don't think we want to look at bivocational as, as the future or as necessary or the way forward. I think in, in incredibly different circumstances from wealth to subsistence, the pattern of Christianity, I think uniquely, has been self-financing and from, from Jesus' Great Commission on. And the way that's happened has varied a lot from congregation to congregation and, and you know, century to century. But that it has happened is just extraordinary. Uh, and there is no doubt that the brother who is being set aside full-time has a great advantage. So I wouldn't want to present it as just neutral or like positive or bivocational. I praise the Lord for those of you who are serving bivocationally, but I would encourage you not to be satisfied with thinking that's where you want it to end because it will be better for you and for your church if they could have, in most cases, there are exceptions. There's sometimes when, sometimes when it's really helpful that it's bivocational. Mm -hmm. But uh, generally, it's, it's helpful if you can have time set aside full time. So I'm not, I'm not really, I haven't really thought a lot about the advantages of that. I understand sometimes when you need to do it, yeah. But other brothers may have thoughts on that. And Mark, it's specifically good for the church to, I don't know if you'd say own the ministry there or would you say that well yeah, why is it good for the congregation so. to be called to paying for their pastors because it, it it's it's obedience to scripture in galatians chapter 6 in in first corinthians and second corinthians and it shows the priority they're putting on it in their own lives and then they will get better quality teaching and matt did you have a component to your question about internship or did i yeah. I'm with you, you know, yeah. pay the laborer, like everything you said. Yeah, that wasn't really my question. My question was in terms of training. So I got guys I'm training who have, you know, jobs and families and uh, they can't just come and do a five month internship with me. They, they've got stuff going on. So we're constantly trying to adapt and having late night discipleship sessions, early, you know, we're trying all these different things, online courses, this and that. And I was, I just wanted to learn from you. If you have, do, do you ever have interns who are juggling a side job while they're interning with you or what that looks like to train guys who you know, are young but have families and, you know, stuff going on that they can't break away from. But uh, clearly the hand of the Lord is upon them. They preach, they teach, they have the marks of an elder. You want to train them to be an elder, but they, they have a job that they're still doing. Or like the church planner with nine people uh, who's holding down a job while the church is growing or whatever. How, how do, what are some things we can do to adapt and train because uh, you were giving the talk on, you know, training and raising up guys. How do we raise up guys? They're bivocational. They work themselves into what you're talking about. Uh, but there could be a season, maybe for years, while they're working a side job, you know, to get there. And how, how do we, what are some things we can do to train better guys in that predicament? And Matt, are you talking about people who are going to be lay elders in my congregation or people who are going to be the main preaching pastor at another church? Uh, both. Uh, what both. What did you have in mind mainly in your question? Ooh, uh, I had in mind actually both, but uh, I mean, we could go with the latter. I have guys I'm training who I think we can send out to plant churches. So, so most of our elders never go through this internship program. Okay, interesting. So, so yeah, that's so. mainly people that are going other places who do the internship? Yeah, it's okay. trying to raise up main preaching pastors mainly. Okay, so the internship, okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that, okay. and then So our 24 elders are not formally trained in any way okay. other than participation in the life of the church and participation in that culture of discipling and themselves being men who are discipling others. So your current elders are just organically growing through taking like those core classes and leading small groups and teaching a class here or there and you raise them up that way and then the internship is more about uh, sending people out. It's more of our missions program. Okay. And most of the interns do not come from membership in our own church. Okay. So we have eight, we, we schedule $200,000 a year. We pay them, we give them a place to live, give them a stipend so they don't have to have a job while they're with us. And they give their time full time, working time to us. We just keep them for five months and they're gone again. So we... 
have you sent out someone from within who is like working a job and became an elder and then you you sent them out to do something that way and we'll, and if so what so we have, like? we've, we've planted a number of churches yeah all of those churches have been able to pay for their pastor full-time from the beginning yes okay uh, I, I would just I mean Matt you're an LA guy we're LA guys um, when we're trying to train guys within the context of our local church and we sense that they're gifted to be a lead pastor somewhere you just have to stretch it out I mean everything we're asking them to do so it takes me 20 minutes to get here Sunday morning from my house it took me an hour to get here last night so just having guys come back after they work in LA getting through traffic you can only have them out so many nights so you just have to stretch out what you're endeavoring to do, and let, you know, like you're doing. So we have to stretch it out. We, we know the marks you want to hit with them. They have to teach the word. We have to equip them in that. Um, and a lot of it's going to be Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. As much as you can keep them with you in your elders' meetings, as much as you can keep them with you when you're shepherding, as much as you can keep them with you when you're visiting. You know, I had a guy with me, Victor Shuler. He was with me for six years. And, uh, and we send them out. It's a great preacher pastor, but I couldn't do it in five, six months. It took a few years um, because he was, you know, the, the limitations of being able to spend time with them. He lived out in the valley, so it was kind of tough. That's the only place he could afford, so he couldn't afford to live in L.A. So, we, so the commuting and all that, we just had the same goals, same standards, same expectations, check the same marks, boxes. It just takes longer. I kept on wanting to almost answer your question because we do have a, our, our pastoral internship is part time. What I mean by that is like, it's only, we have, we, almost all of our people are working elsewhere and not all of our elder, we have four, there's four of us, one of our brothers here, two of them actually before we sent one overseas, but uh, two of them have not done the internship and our pastors at our church and then two of them besides have done the internship at our church and our pastors at our church and the brother who, who is a pastor, he had Two kids now has three kids did the internship we run it part-time but i think the disjunction was mark's point that the internship is not a training program for eldership necessarily in the, in the local church so rocky yeah thank you um we want to steward our finance as well and any uh, guidelines brothers how you would decide what type of workers you support in terms of missions um anything that we you would like to share to us on that yeah, that was the, the first thing. I, when I went to Capitol Hill, they very kindly allowed me just to sit there for three months and watch the church function. I didn't preach. I didn't do anything. Because I was trying to learn their language, what they were used to, so I didn't offend them needlessly. You know, so I could do what they're used to. The one exception I made to that myself was I wanted to go to the missions committee. So I went to the missions committee meeting while I was in those three months. And... Uh, I basically laid out my plan, which was to support fewer missionaries to the glory of God. Uh, they had had the idea that through a great commission service once a year, with every country having a flag represented a different person, the more flags, the better job they were doing fulfilling the great commission. Uh, I thought that was not right. Uh, I thought that we need to support fewer and more. So rather than giving 35 couples $3,000 each, let's give four couples $60,000 each uh, so that we are able to really be responsible for them. They're able to be responsible to us. They don't exhaust themselves when they come back for fundraising. And then I know the two other churches that are giving to them. So if their giving is down, I can take the time to call those two other pastors and say, hey, this is their need. Which of us can help to meet this? So there are just all kinds of practical benefits in shrinking down the number and making it the more strategic work and then supporting them much more fully so that their time would be more fully given to work and they could integrate better with our congregation when they come back for furlough. And it's worked, uh, we've been doing that now for 30 years basically, and it's worked really well. Yeah. I would also say that I tried to up the percentage of our giving that was going to missions and international missions, and we've got it up to 15% of the budget and it's kind of just gotten stuck there. But we make sure it is at least 15% of the church's budget. Everybody has different constraints of salaries and of land, whatever. But I would just say the main missions advocate in the local church needs to be the senior pastor. Because you will always see a way that those dollars, if they stayed here, would make your youth program better and your church more competitive. I mean, just all kinds of stuff can happen with those dollars. 
And that's why you must be the guy to advocate the dollars leaving you for gospel work in needier places. That has to be the senior pastor. Rocky, I just texted you. The rest of you can Google. I just texted you an article called Guidelines for Deciding Whom a Church Supports. Hmm. Write that down. Guidelines for Deciding Whom a Church Supports by Andy Johnson. And what he does in this article, especially helpful, is he lists out four tiers of support hmm. that CHBC gets behind. So tier one, CHBC teams. And then he describes that what that is and how much they would support it. Tier two, CHBC workers. Tier three, independent workers. Tier, tier four, we won't stop you. Um, and depending on how involved you are as a person coming to the pastors and saying, hey, I want to go here and do this and be involved with you, more or less support will come. And he gives criteria for each. Super Very useful helpful. distinctions he makes. Yeah. yeah. Let me just add one more thought because I didn't, I didn't hear this in the list. It's probably in there. I, I would say the lineup, your hierarchy of priorities with what the mission team and budget is doing, that the way the Great Commission is fulfilled from Matthew chapter 28 is, is fulfilled in Acts 14 by church planning. There's all kind of compassion works, build a well and save water. And when I you know, entered my first pastorate, we were doing all this compassion stuff. And, and it took me a while to teach them how the Great Commission is fulfilled through planning churches and through supporting pastors and so eventually we had this limited budget and we gave more to less but the but the works that were planning solid churches when I say solid ch churches with a criteria of healthy churches and Bobby did you find that members of your church were getting to know the work better because you were concentrating on a few yes yeah. yep it really worked well. I mean, it was, yeah. it, was a, it was a blessing to people who were supporting. We wrote a letter to the people that we took off support. They understood because we just sent them whatever, a little bit of money here and there. And they thanked us. They said a lot of times we just get cut off and people don't support us. We never know why. But we sent that hierarchy of priorities. This is what we're endeavoring to do and commit to as a church for, for these reasons. And they really, that really, they really appreciated that. And as those relationships with the one that stay on and that you get more to grow, Rocky, one thing we find is that members of the church will end up supporting them directly, not even through yes. the church, in ways that we don't even know about. They'll, in trips, they'll take trips to see them. There's just all kinds of good natural things that grow up in terms of support. Yeah. Way. Thanks. The microphone in the back, whichever one has the back microphone. Go ahead. Uh, that's you. Oh. All right. Samuel Rios from Chino Valley Community Church in Chino Hills. Uh, in that qualification list... Samuel, can you just say all of those things more distinctly and separated from each other? I sure can. That's what my video guy says, too. Uh, Sammy Rios, Chino Valley Community Church in Chino Hills. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, in the qualification list for elders, one of the things that's listed is uh, not having a rebellious child. Hmm. And what would you say when a pastor is a or an elder is a dedicated godly person, but one of their children who's like 15, 16 years old decides to go off and completely rebel against them, does that truly disqualify him from being an elder or should he just shift his focus for a season to pursue his child more Samuel that's a great question let me speak as as a man with two children two adult children one of whom is not a believer has never professed faith in Christ the other of whom professes to be a Christian but he's not going to church right now so I'm not sure what that means um, the, the qualification I think in Titus 1 is of the kids being faithful. Uh, and I don't think it means believers. I, I think that's been a very small minority of people who have understood it that way. And I actually taught on this back when I had one child and she was like two or three, and I've got it on tape. So this isn't self-justifying. This is always what I thought scripture means. And I really like my kids to be saved, so I'm working on them, praying for it. But I, I think that what we want to see is the home in order. And I think you've deliberately given a slightly questionable example. If you tilt it a little bit in one direction or the other, I think we could all see, if you mean they're out of the home, they're 19, and they're living not as a Christian, then unless you think it just means believer, then I think it's clearly not what he's talking about. On the other hand, if they're like 10, and they're in the home, and they're an uncontrollable, you know, terror, and they, they're not really responding well to any authority at all, then yeah, that puts a serious question against your ability to shepherd God's household. So I think you, you have to, you've put a kind of middle case, and that would just, I would have to see the specifics in real life to know what I would recommend there. 
Again, a couple other article rec recommendations for anybody on this topic. Two articles, one called Unbelief in an Elder's Children, Exegesis, that's by Justin Taylor, the Nine Marks website. The other one's called, same title, Unbelief in an Elder's Children, except now Practice, that's by Matt Schmucker, also at the Nine Marks website. Uh, dealing with the exegetical issues, is it faithful, is it unbelievable, and then some, and then some wisdom about it. Good, good things to recommend, I think. But Samuel, just to be clear, your, your question was difficult because of the pastoral specifics of it. And that's what you're just going to need elders for. Yeah. Hector Espinoza, Echo Church, Chino. Uh, kind of a double-sided question, but um, is there an age limit that you guys have for members that are coming into you guys' church? And since baptism and membership go hand in hand, is there an age limit for that? Age limit? Uh, I, I, yes, we do. I, I, it's 18, and we're in the process of really thinking that through again. We may lower it to 16 or something. Do you guys have an age limit? Not exactly. <laughs> yeah, we do. What is it? 13. We don't have an age limit. Oh. The, the, the challenge is uh, establishing a credible profession of faith. How can you know that, that their profession of faith in Christ is credible? For well, and the you not being the parents, yeah, but yeah. the congregation. The, yeah, the, the church as yeah. a whole. Pastors leading the church in that nomination, and then the church also considering that their profession, whether it's credible or not. That's the challenge. And the, yeah. Steve, can you give him that mic? With membership can, along, can come along discipline. Yeah. So for someone that's underage, legally at least, are there any things that the church should be aware of when potentially going through those things? Jonathan, under 18, so you said 13. So for, if they're for under discipline? For discipline. Yeah. A 14-year-old well, member. Yeah, I mean, I, a couple of things. Number one, I, you, you do need to be aware of the laws in your own state, county, country, and, and they're going to change state, county, country to state, county, country. Uh, you, you want to at least be aware of those things, not that that's necessarily determinative of what you do, but if you're going to break it, know you're going to break it before you break it. Uh, number two, if you're going to bring 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds into your church, I think you need to be willing to discipline them as well. Because... You can't have a category of members who are immune to discipline. <laughs> exactly. Just, yeah. that, Which should be an argument for... That's one argument for why you should wait. Until, that's why we waited. Until functional adulthood or functional independence. And, and Bobby, so that's why we basically... Were, we, we wait to baptize adults, basically. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, but, but if somebody is... If, if the whole church is willing to say, we affirm little Susie is a follower of Jesus, well... They should be willing to say, we no longer affirm. If little Susie at age 14 makes a pattern of partying and sleeping around or whatever, unrepentantly. So if, if you're going to bring them in, you need to be willing to put them out. Who has a microphone next? Uh, Vinod from Santa Monica again. Um, I'm curious about uh, the missions question, when you support missionaries and you've, you've got a few missionaries who you support, do you support them in perpetuity till they retire, till they're off the field? Is there a point where you stop supporting them? Uh, it varies missionary to missionary, but essentially we will probably support them in perpetuity, but it, it just, it varies. We've, once we, we're that involved with them, we're helping them think about, you're going you're gonna to move from Medellin, uh, let's go to Spain. I think you've got more time on you, let's go to Spain. Let's try to do this work over here. So we're going to be part of their conversations. Uh, Max ready to retire? Okay, let's pull him out. Uh, okay, we're going to step down your support the next two years. Give it to Andy over here in Turkey. God bless you, brother. We love you. Yeah, it's just going to it's going to be individual. Steve. Yes, <clears throat> Steve Chang from Living Hope Community Church in Brea. Uh, my question is. Um, a little bit related to perhaps what you guys are going to be talking about at the SBC convention about why denominations are necessary or why churches should be part of a denomination, uh, non-denominational. What are the essential ingredients of being at least a part of something? Um, 
knowing that, for example, for the SBC, you don't actually have judicial oversight over other churches. So it is just a, actually a fellowship of churches, and that's one of the problems. So what are the essentials? And, and I know you have network of friendships, which is important, but the churches don't, the elders don't have that same thing as well. So what are the essential ingredients of a denomination or a network that you think is necessary? I'd like you to talk about that, Jonathan. Steve, just briefly, on, on the judicial, the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't have judicial authority. That's according to the Bible. So forget the Southern Baptist Convention ever existed. The Bible does not have any judicial authority above a local church. So we're not in the matter of, oh, I like a bishop. I don't like a bishop. Forget it. I don't care what any of us like. The, the Bible does not give the authority to any group above a local church. Well, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but my Presbyterian friends would say, well, that's one of the issues. Right. And they're wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I love them dearly. I learn from them. They're smarter than we are, but, I, but they're wrong. They've misread that one. They're just wrong. Go to Matthew 18. Um, but our conversation on Tuesday night is going to be from the opposite side. So I don't know how helpful it is. These are you guys all in the SBC wondering how long do we stay in? Yeah. Do we need to have this? So they're asking the exact opposite question of you. Now they may get to the same issues. But you're standing outside wondering why it's necessary. We're asking what sounds like a similar question, but it's like this goop all over us. And we're wondering, do we have to have this? You know, and the answer may be yes. Um, so it'll be an interesting conversation, but it's not quite the same perspective you're asking it from. I appreciate the sensitivity in the question insofar as you, you, you acknowledged the beginning, not all denominations, we use the same word, denomination, but mean two different things by them, whether there's authority or not. And you're right, SBC and Baptistic denominations generally are, are a fellowship of churches. And why do you fellowship denominationally? For the sake of the things you can do together. Think about Jerusalem. They hear something is going on in Antioch. So they send people up. And Antioch finds out, oh, you guys are in a famine. So they send money down. And Paul goes to churches, and then he goes back to churches, and then they send each other greetings, and they're sending each other missionaries and pastors, and they're doing this great commission work together. A fellowship, a formal fellowship, is just a way of making sure you do that kind of stuff. So why you would be involved in a fellowship, hey, let's, we, can, we can train missionaries together, pool our money. We can pool our money to send seminarians. We can find fellowship as pastors together. We can look for ways to encourage one another. So it's the things you can do together, not under an authoritative structure, but formally would be reasons for joining. You're 70 churches that have had this conference together today. Yeah. You, you could do this every year. You could do some conference together, you know, as these 70 churches. Yep. If you want to read more on it, uh, we did give the book Baptist Foundations, and Jonathan Lehman did two chapters at the end on cooperation and churches. And Baptist Foundations? Yeah. The final chapter on Catholicity spells out why partner, why you need to be both independent and interdependent. And the third chapter, the final chapter of my book, One Assembly, offers an even more practical presentation of what it means to partner together with other churches. That might be helpful, brother. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is a picture of it again. Yeah. Shepherd LA. Yeah. Yeah, which is not Shepherding LA. It's yeah. Shepherd LA. <laughs> yes. no Some people have misrepresented LA. it as Shepherding LA. Yeah, it's true. Shepherding I don't know where they get the ding from, but it's just yeah. Shepherd LA. Yeah. It's Shepherd LA. That's pretty important. Not the Church of LA. Clark, you got... Yeah. Um, I had a question, actually. Okay. Um, I'm Clark from Bethany Baptist Church in Bellflower. Um, I was just curious, um, when you're talking about age limits, um, do you have an age limit in um, an age that you would allow an elder to come into your church? Or how does that process go? Um, you mean to make a man an elder? Yeah, it's a recommended elder. No. 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 Okay. I... I but, but, but when I so like even if they're like like say there's like a 21 year old guy who's you know in good standing with the church like would you nominate someone who's well, I, I I mean formally no I, I I did advise a pastor who had that 21 year old recently his senior pastor wanted to make a 21 year old pastor a pastor and the associate was like eh. uh, yeah I would have reluctance about the 21 year old 
it would vary for me if uh, let me know the, his track record of ministry and uh, let me see the rest of your eldership if there, if you've got a large stable eldership I might risk it um, but if it's three guys and I've got two or three other good candidates mm, I'm going to be you know concerned there but it would just depend on the specifics yeah, this is when I think about bishop pastor elder all, all, all the same person would describe from these different vantage points overseer shepherding but the word elder to me at least implies there's got to be a significant level of maturity so did okay. Timothy was he old enough yeah I, I, yeah I think Paul affirmed his maturity yeah so, so he I'm, also affirmed his youth though so he also yes, affirmed his youth right so I, I'm not taking the word elder he literally. also said not a recent convert yeah so I, I wouldn't oh. take the word literally as, as I don't think the New Testament gives, gives us that but I think um, just because he's shepherding people I think the church needs to affirm looking at First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that he really is mature but the thing is, what is an elder? He's, a, he's an exemplary Christian. You're holding him up and saying, hey, church, the way he's husband of one wife, be like that. The way he's not a drunkard, be like that. The way he's above reproach, able to teach, all these things. Well, maybe able to teach would be the one exception. But the way he's temperate, he's sober-minded, be like that. Which presumes experience, track record. We've been watching him for a while. That's just harder with the 21-year-old. I, I don't know how you do so that. So would you have well. a single guy as an elder? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Bobby, have you thought about when you're too old to be an elder? I'm getting close, but no. <laughs> wow. You can tell the conference is going downhill. <laughs> Crossfire. No, that was a question. Yeah. I, I think men need to think that through. I mean, so when you can't remember what day it is anymore, then you, <laughs> it might be time to step back. It's true. Question. So you guys talked about Sorry, name Caleb Strader from Faith Community Church Palmdale. Um, you guys talked about you know raising up leadership. Once you have that guy who desires the office of an elder, um, and he starts to pursue it, what's your process for each of your churches for vetting that elder to get him to that point where you actually affirm that he is an elder? Hmm. You said when he when he. So once he desires that, what's your process for then vetting him? Oh, well, I mean, different, different brothers are at different points when they, when they say that they're aspiring to be an elder. So it depends on, on the person. But generally, if they're, I mean, if, they're, if they've been a member for a while, then we would know them fairly well. And so that would be a little bit different. If they're a newer member and they aspire to be an elder, uh, we're just telling them to get, to get to know the congregation, to keep discipling people be faithful to caring for each other, influence, just be a faithful member with all those duties of being a member for a season. Um, yeah, so once, once we start to see that there is potential, and the, the, what we do is we don't have any formal process with that person. We just call them to be a faithful member of a church, which is a pretty high expectation in terms of just following the one another, following all the biblical commands of what a, what a member should be doing. So we're calling them to that, to engage in the life of the church and with the church in the neighborhood and in the community for the nation. So we're calling them to just do biblical Christianity and then, um, and then the pastors are talking about, about the person and we're investing in the person and sharing, trying to equip him for his work of ministry. And the more and more we get confident about it, then we start to have a conversation with that brother about eldership. But that's only after the, the pastors are already confident that we want to move in that direction. Does, does your congregation then vote to approve that person as an elder? Or yes, they the do. Board? So one of the things we also have regularly in our church, it's, it's not once in a while, a regular conversation in our church is, who do you see who you think is elder qualified in our church? We're trusting that the Lord is raising up people in our church, or I might ask a church member like Art, like, if, if, if you can't get a hold of pastors and you need help uh, for your soul, who would you call and why? So they're going to tell me a name. And start, once they start hearing that name over and over and over and over again from a lot of different members in the church, from different demographics and different stages of life and things like that, then we, we might know that we have an elder on our hand as well. So that's a regular conversation. If I'm asking how he's doing, I might eventually just ask sometimes, so do you think anyone should be a pastor? And I might even just say to that particular brother, and I learned this from Mark, like, um, or maybe Jonathan, what's the difference between... Uh, elder qualified Caleb and current Caleb. So even challenging the men to think about why, why they're not where they should be in regard to just their own, their growth in Christ. Super similar answer. So something also Mark's church does, Mark's elders do to raise guys up that I don't think I heard you mention, but I think is a crucial part of it is every elder meeting, right? You devote 30 minutes to that question, what PJ just said. 
And what that does is it keeps it on the minds of every guy there and also places a premium in their minds and hearts of raising up future elders as a major part of what we do. So every meeting, they're doing that. And Caleb, that'll be an executive session where there's nobody but the elders there. That's right. So we can freely discuss people. After that discussion, a few other things. Multiple elders will have lunch or breakfast or coffee or whatever with that guy. Get to know them if they don't know them. Eventually, they'll invite the person to the table and have them participate in the elders meeting. I could stop saying that. We, we do the same. Invite people to the, the table and how would you vote on that? How did you think through that issue we just went through? Once, once we all decide unanimously with no no's at least that we want to bring a guy on we'll have a conversation with his wife and see how she feels about that and if she's in support of that and then there'll be a final process in which we present the person to the congregation to get, spend two months thinking about it do you talk and then to voting. His, do you talk to his children as well say that again do you talk to his children as well like the whole family or just the wife no okay uh no. But if we're thinking about somebody for an, as an elder, their family's going to be well known to us. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't mind, especially if they're teenage children. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't be against talking to them, but it's not part of the process per se. Yeah. One thing with that, so we we have followed uh, CHPC in that regard of executive session. We have a, doc, a shared document with the name, um, why we think what we see in them, or what others have said that are significant that we affirm of, in terms of evidence of God's grace for, for pastoring, our concerns. We have another column for our concerns. And then we have the names of the members who have mentioned that person. So just, and that list just, we just keep updating that every, every, um, every meeting. Yeah, I, I, I'm agreeing with it, what it, what's been said. Um, I, I would just add, just for clarity's sake, um, that if someone feels the desire and they're being uh, called to be an elder, then they're at the same time saying that I am something and I, I'm gifted to do something. And, and I think for the church to affirm that, the church is saying the same thing and the elders are saying the same thing. You are First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and you can shepherd and you can teach. Um, and I think sometimes people may feel a desire called a ministry and they're not quite there yet. So we'll make sure we're spending time with an, a, a young man or a potential elder like that. So Anthony, my co-pastor, myself, or one of the elders will spend a significant amount of time with someone at that point. And then we will also uh, bring them on to our elder board meetings. And so they'll attend a year or whatever because they're committing to do something they haven't seen. They have, this, they have to see what it is, this desire, you know, you know culminates to that I, I'm committing to do X, Y, and Z. So having them sit on the elder board is a good way for us, for them to know, yep, and to affirm for us as well, too, and thus spending time with them to fill out what might be missing in First Timothy 3, to fill out what may, might be missing in uh, Titus chapter 1. So we're discipling them intentionally. So, Bobby, I would want to say that when we're calling somebody to be an elder, I, while I appreciate you having them at the, at the elders' meetings, most of what we're seeing that we want is what they're already doing. Yeah, right. So it's yeah. not what they will begin to do when the church votes is recognized as an elder. It's that we see you shepherding the congregation, and we would like you now to come to some meetings, be part of some conversations, and have a vote. But it's not like now all of a sudden, Charles, bless the congregation with an elder-like ministry. We, we want to see that elder-like ministry as absolutely typical of men and women in the church with other women, and yeah. then those who we feel are... Hmm best at it or really good also potentially at the table work we'll ask them to step in for that also even if that means they have to cut back a lot of really what is the essence of their elder work uh, for a time to service in this way yeah, yeah so I mean Mark said it already we're recognizing what the Lord has done that we, we would say, say the same book, book recommendation the path to being a pastor a guide for the aspiring by Bobby Jameson really good right over here Good afternoon, uh, Jordan from Grace Church, Monterey Bay. Um, so two questions. Number one, elder um, term duration, how long or short? And question number two, if there's a tie in the vote, like for example at Capitol Hill, there's 24 elders. If you tie, do you table it, revote? Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. I can't recall there ever being a tie, uh, but uh, it, it, generally by, by Robert's Rules of Order, a tie is a fail. So you have to have a majority for it to work. Um, we have a term limit of three years, and then they're uh, available to be nominated for another three years. The congregation, the elders would have to nominate them again. That means the elders will have to vote again. They'll have to consider them again. Uh, the person who's being considered will answer questions, and they'll step out of the room. 
So then the elders have a private conversation about should we ask Jonathan to have another three-year term? Um, then if the Jonathan's willing to and the elders want him to, then it would go to the congregation and they would have two months to think about it. And at the following members meeting by secret ballot, we would vote. After Jonathan has had two three-year terms, that is six years, he has to take a year off. Now, when we say a year off, he's not guaranteed to come back on in a year, but he has to have at least a year off. That is, he rolls off the board, and then we can't nominate him again in eight months because we really want him on. No, I mean, he has to have a year off. Uh, and that's super useful in so many ways. And the people who always like it best are the wives of the elders. Uh, they love the year off and the sabbatical. And so what almost always happens uh, is that becomes a two-year or two-and-a-half-year or three-year sabbatical. And that's fine. We trust the Lord. We trust that they love us. We want them back almost always. There's very rarely a time when a man is served that we don't want him back uh, by God's grace. But we want to be very gentle because he has important things he's doing at work with his family. And when it's time, just know we want him back. And then they usually do come back. And obviously all of this is prudential, right? The Bible doesn't specify it as such. And we find at Nine Marks when we want to do something that's not in the Bible, we don't say pragmatic, we say prudential. Because, you know, pragmatic's bad. Yeah. So. So, so we, we don't have a, a term limit. Um, what we do uh, each year, we have an elders kind of planning weekend. We'll get away. And each year we ask each man um, about their desire to serve for the upcoming year. Life comes in seasons. Sometimes a man may need to step back, but that would be, you know, him letting us know and us affirming that and shepherding him through that. Great. Question over here. Hey. Hello. Uh, my name is Young uh, from uh, Peace Community Church, West Hills, L.A. So um, I have a godly man in my church, twice of my age, uh, super smart. Uh, PhD, MBA, you name it, and uh, his uh, official title is a deacon, head deacon, but he functions as an elder, teaches once a month, which I recommended him to do that, but the thing is that his wife worships, goes to a different church, so how do you uh, deal with that? I mean, in terms of qualifications, spiritual qualification, he's a uh, I think he's a well-qualified, 1 Timothy 3, uh, Titus 1, just that his wife goes to a different church. So how do you deal with that? Um, well, we've looked at, um, you, you want him to be an elder? Or, or just he, he's just a deacon, but he deacon. functions as an elder. Yeah, he, okay. He desires to, and he functions as an elder. He's, uh, yeah, he's an elder, and he has the desire to do that, continue to do that as well. When we've crossed that bridge, we've said no. Um, um, we'll allow him to serve according to his giftedness, but we won't affirm him as a deacon or an elder if his wife isn't a member of the church. Um, Or if she's attending another church. Well, particularly in our case, we've had wives maybe attend bad churches, and so we like we would encourage him to work on his his marriage, his family, and spiritually lead his home. So that's what we've emphasized. That'd be my instinct too. I've not encountered that, but that would be my instinct as well. I think you have freedom in this area it would be a matter of prudence. Any more questions? Oh, right here. Yeah. Uh, Marco Seto from Evergreen Church in La Puente. Um, currently we're working on new bylaws and my question is with the elders how do you ensure ensure that you get voices heard from different ministries especially from the females hmm. at your churches for the bylaws you're talking about you said well no I mean just as as elders run church how do you how do you ensure that the the ladies of your church are being heard with their concerns or ideas and so forth so you're not really asking about bylaws. You're kind of talking about within a complementarian yeah, church. Yeah, because how, how, how do we know that we're hearing from the women? Yes. That's the question. Correct. Yeah, we, we don't have a, uh, a process in our, you know, spelled out in our philosophy of ministry. We've just asked and we've met with them. 
Um, and we met with them until they really felt like they were heard. So we met with our single ladies, and, and so we'll just, a couple of our elders will meet with them. And also we have, a, our, in our church, we have a, a women's leadership um, uh, team, and they oversee our women's ministry, we, and we regularly communicate with them to make sure we're hearing their concerns. Uh, our church is fairly small, so we hear from them quite regularly. Um, wives, women discipling others, hanging out Sunday nights, so we're around. Typically on a Sunday night from the, from the pulpit, I'll just say at the very beginning after I make the announcement saying, if you want to talk to any of the pastors after this evening gathering, just find us. We're hanging out here. And so typically that's a lot of times when we get times with sisters as well. What is Chevrolet I would say a few things. Number one, you, you need a, a broader cultural base of valuing women as an in essential and indispensable part of Great Commission ministry. If you're kind of relegating them to the side to do the making of food or whatever, that's a wonderful thing to do, but just is there a larger vision of, of the crucial role of valuing women in making disciples? Are, are, are you teaching them to teach women and so forth? Uh, so I think there's a, there's a larger cultural question at play that you need to begin with. Beyond that, uh, it depends on your time and place. Something our elders do is we often invite a deaconess into the elder meetings and deacons just to give us a report and then with the deaconesses in particular, we'll, we'll lean in a little bit and say, hey, is there anything you feel like you're seeing as a woman in the church that, that we're failing to see or that we, we should be aware of? So we'll go out of our way to ask those kinds of questions, uh, specifically of, of women who are more visible in, in the church in one form or another. One last thing, we also have an open email. To the women email us, so we're just very accessible to our members. Um, let's give a round of applause. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you for investing in us. Thank you, PJ. Thanks, Thanks guys. Yeah.